0: Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. The Sufi writer and teacher Rumi is so important in the Islamic world that four modern countries claim him for their own. Afghanistan, as he was born in that area, in the town of Balkh in 1207. Uzbekistan, as he lived in Samarkand as a child, Turkey, as he lived, worked and died in the Anatolian city of Konya, Iran, as he wrote in Persian. Rumi is treasured throughout Islam and beyond for his poetry. His Masnabi and Divan. His output was extraordinary, around four times longer longer than Homer's Odyssey. The Divan is a massive collection of lyrical poems. The Masnavi are spiritual verses of enormous complexity described controversially in the 14th century as the Persian Quran. His followers founded the Mevlevi order of Sufis known outside Turkey for their whirling dervishes. With me to discuss the poems of Rumi are Alan Williams, British Academy Wolfson Research Professor at the University of Manchester, <clears throat> Carl Hillenbrand, Professor of Islamic History at the University of St Andrews and Professor Emerita of Edinburgh University, and Lloyd Ridgen, reader in Islamic studies at the University of Glasgow. Carol Hillenbrand, why did Rumi and his family move around so much in his early life?
1: Rumi and his family lived originally in what is now Afghanistan, Tajikistan. And his father was a reputed teacher and scholar and he had a group of disciples around him. And at one point, in around 1212, they were living in Samarkand and Rumi's father had a dispute with the ruler and left the area. Now, whether or not that was also because of the rumbling rumours about uh, terrible activities by the Mongols further east, which uh, would have added an incentive to the move, the family, Lockstock and Barrel, moved and they travelled first to Baghdad and then Mecca and Damascus before finally, having come from the extreme eastern part of the Islamic world, ended up on the western periphery, In the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum, hence Rumi's name, which uh, is the Arabic word for Byzantium. So they, they settled in the area of the Seljuk Sultanate, and finally the father of Rumi was invited to Konya, which is where Rumi was destined to remain.
0: So in the background we have the thundering hooves of Genghis Khan coming in from the east, and it was, it was either a magnificent intuition or just luck that he got out in time. His father with the family, uh, and so that's in, that's the background of his childhood. In the foreground is this: could we call his father a wandering scholar, or was he looking for the best place, or was he rejected one place and went, What was sort of going on? Why did he move so much?
1: It isn't really very clear. He doesn't sound to have been very controversial. He was um, a highly respected scholar. I I suspect that he had uh, an an adventurous spirit, hence his going to uh, the pilgrimage in Mecca and also to Damascus and Baghdad. But the idea of ending up in Turkey, as it now is, is really um, very exciting, and the idea of him making Konya into such an important place is, um, to his credit, before even his son began
0: So he helped to make Konya a centre of learning? Certainly. Rumi's father, so we're talking about a very important man.
1: Yes, although of course um, it became much more um, famous when Rumi himself took over.
0: And what would he teach, this teacher?
1: Islamic law and and, uh, Sufi doctrine, because uh, Rumi's father was also interested in, in Sufism.
0: And so he would teach things that people had to... Would, he, would pupils come and pay to be taught by him? Would he go into the beginnings of what we might call a school,
1: a yes. embryonic university? Yes, there, there were madrasas in Konya, and he would also do more Sufi exercises in the cloisters for Sufis in Konya.
0: Just to clarify this, if we can clarify, Sufis inside the carapace, inside the embrace of Islam?
1: Certainly. It, ha- it wasn't always... Because there were some people who were regarded as extreme and heterodox, because they seemed to wish to dispense with the Sharia, but Al-Ghazali made sure, in the um, in in his famous writings, that the dimension of Sufism, the mystical dimension of Sufism, in Islam must also observe the outer rind of the Sharia.
0: Alan Williams, one assumes that uh, uh, one of the great influences on Rumi was his father. So if you might might want to develop that a little, but who else were I until his mid-thirties?
2: Yes, until his mid-thirties, um, and you you say that because we know that there's somebody very important coming in his life, Shamsi Tabriz. Um, his father was a great influence on him. We know that because Rumi seems to have been reading his works later in his life and um, the Ma'aref uh, of of his father Bahaudin uh, was an important text for him, intimations of of the mystic path. Um, the other important influence on him before he met Shamsi Tabriz uh, was the successor to uh, his father Baha'uddin as the head of the madrasa in Konya, who was called Burhanuddin Mohaqiq. Uh, he was an important influence on him perhaps because he was... Perhaps the most important, uh, the first visionary mystic of, of, of some mystical attainment that he'd met. Um, it's known that Buhana records his own mystical flights and and speaks of his own experiences. Uh, but I must say there is a non-human influence on him which, which is the elephant in the room, if you like. It's the Quran itself and the Hadith tradition. This is perhaps the greatest influence on Rumi and we'll see later... Uh, that that it runs through his life like a golden thread uh, and uh, one, one, one must remember that before one speaks about human influences
0: Well let's go to the big human influence whom you mentioned in your introduction to your remarks then Alan the Sufi mystic Shams al-Tabriz I've got it written down here mm. but he, there's several variations of that tell, can you tell us who he is, how old he was when he came into
2: Rumi's life and what he did When he came into Rumi's life in I think around 1244 uh, uh, Rumi would have been thirty-seven, and Shams Tabriz would have been fifty-five. Um, so an old, uh, an old, an elderly man in those days, um, certainly in late middle age. Um, now he is a very mysterious and charismatic figure. He used to be thought of as a sort of mad wandering alandar, but recently, the mad wandering what? Uh, uh, sorry, yes, uh, an antinomian wandering dervish. Uh, or an, by uh, an un- unconventional sometimes they were even naked like naked faqirs but, uh, these these are the wild haired men of Islamic mysticism kalandars as they're called or kalandars uh, now we know now that, that Shamsi Tabriz was actually a very learned man and we can see from his writings that he was both a man of uh, immense kindness and, uh, but at the same time of great severity uh, and, and this is this is uh, his name, Shams, means the sun. Uh, but he seems to have come into, sorry to brush uh, yeah, you a bit, know. but he seems to have come into Rumi's in life to.
0: Uh, to dramatic effect for a very short time. Can you just tell us the effect he had on him in the two years they spent together?
2: Yeah, it's regarded as the transformation point uh, in Rumi's life. Uh, It's said that Rumi was raw, and then he became cooked when he met Shamsi Tabriz, and then when Shamsi Tabriz disappeared, he was burnt by the experience. And this transformation of Rumi was because they had the most intense... Uh, a mystical relationship. They were companions for just two years, and there was a period of separation in that short period of two years, from twelve forty four to forty six. Uh, his his p- Rumi's own pupils were so jealous of that close liaison uh, that that he was so to speak hounded out of town, or he left of his own accord. We don't know quite which. A lot of what we know about Rumi is based on hagiographical sources, but it seems, if we sift the evidence, that certainly Shams left town and didn't say where he was going, and Rumi pined after him and wrote to him and begged him to come back. He came back uh, uh, soon, but... After another, within a year, he disappeared forever, and there is a, a great controversy in the, in the literature about whether or not he was bumped off by by uh, Rumi's disciples. Is it is it possible to say? I know this is ridiculous, but still, here we go.
0: Is it possible to say, in essence, what he taught Rumi, how he, as you say, and as seems to be. Uh, Born out by the work, transformed this brilliant young able scholar picked out from the time he was a boy into the great poet, the great preacher of Sufism, the great mystic and so on and so forth. What happened? They, secret- they were together, very closely together uh, from this time. What happened?
2: Yeah, there's a difficulty in answering that question, which is that really we don't know we don't know Shams debris well enough. The maqalat, or the discourses of Shams are extremely difficult texts and they're patched together from notes, so to speak, probably by one of Rumi's pupils, uh But the it is really probably the case that that he he unlocked the poet in Rumi. Now, his father had not been interested in poetry, it seems. He quoted some poetry in his own writings, but his father didn't teach Rumi poetry. Uh, Burhanuddin seems to have uh, 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 introduced him to mystical experience, but it was Shams who opened the, the floodgates of poetry in Rumi and in, in, a, in, in the period after, we have this massive outpouring of, of poetry uh, ever after until he died in 1273.
0: And the pupils were jealous because of the, uh, and the closeness of the two. Uh, the word intimacy came to my mind and dismissed it because it was more Socratic than anything else, according to your notes. Mind you, Socratic, well, there you go.
2: <laughs> we're not used to understand... We don't understand in the modern world... We're, we're not used to understanding these, this idea of very close mystical communion between two men, and it's stigmatised, and, and there are all sorts of stories uh, in the modern world and ideas about their relationship. But I think one can say with clarity that... Uh, this was a this was a, a, uh, not a sober relationship, but it was a chaste relationship of mystical mystical companionship and communication. Uh,
0: thank you very much, Lloyd, Lloyd Ridgen. Sufism. We've used the word mysticism two or three times in this conversation so far. Is Sufism is, is it built around that? Is is mysticism the kernel of Sufism? In which case, can you tell listeners what it, mysticism meant then and why it was so important then? We seem to, most people listen to the programme probably, like myself, it's, it's in the past, it's a thing that was then. But I don't think anything's ever then, isn't it?
3: Anyway, never mind. What is it? Well, the best way to explore that is to look back at the, the history of Sufism. And for some people, it might be a surprise that the words Sufism and Sufi do not appear in the Quran. What happened is that Sufism emerged as a social phenomenon in the 9th and 10th centuries, and it was part of a pietist movement, and it was representative, if you like, of what we might term normative Islam. But having said that, there were one or two individuals... What do you mean normative Islam? The the going going concerns from the Quran. Absolutely. In in terms of performing your prayers, going on pilgrimage, fasting, and so on and so forth. But uh, despite that, despite this pietist movement, there were some individuals who perhaps took the emerging Sufi movement a little bit further. In particular, there was one Sufi called Halaj, and he was executed in 922 because of his supposed statement, I am the truth or I am God. I'm what? I am God. So what many people thought he was doing was blurring the distinctions between creator and created, between man and God. That's often how he's understood in in the Sufi path anyway. But um, after that period... Uh, Sufism becomes a little bit more conservative and this idea of of mysticism, this idea of some kind of unitive experience of man and God becomes pushed into the background. But nevertheless, the Sufi tradition remains incredibly popular among the masses in particular. And this might be because um, Sufis tended to allow lay people to join in certain parts of their rituals one of the ritual, of course, was the samar or, or the the mystical concert where poetry would be recited, and it was in in the, on those occasions where a sufi may engage in some kind of mystical experience. Because it was so popular,
0: now can you? I'm stopping you. I'm sorry, but is it possible to tell us now mm. what a mystical experience mm. would have been like then?
3: Well, in the medieval period, we have many, many mystics who portray their own understanding of what mysticism is. For people like uh, Rumi... the
0: Sufis, yeah. For people
3: like Rumi, it is about the understanding of witnessing God, however that may be. For some people, it was the idea of feeling some kind of unity among everything in existence. So th- this is in contrast to how, how Islam is understood by the theologians and the clerics because they wanted to preserve an utter distinction an utter ontological distinction between the human being and God the creator the divine Whereas the Sufis tended to blur these distinctions so that everything is one
0: Rumi wanted uh, and after with that great teacher that yeah. Alan just talked about uh-huh. he wanted to as you were pull aside the veil between the aspiration and the passion of man and the idea of God, is that right?
3: I think that's true, I think that's fair I mean you you can read all of these passages in in the Masnavi, in the Divana Shams another long poem by Rumi and the fundamental teaching is to purify yourself so that the kind of divine emanation or a divine reflection can can be seen within yourself and you will realise the underlying unity in the whole of existence
0: Can you tell us, is there a was he a specific sort of Sufi, Rumi, after this encounter? Because we've got past the great encounter now. He's on his way. He's going to write more poetry mm. than, than, than Homer, if Homer wrote it all, and so on and so forth. What sort of Sufi would he have been described right. as being?
3: Well, Sufism in, in this period, in the 13th century, was completely diverse. There were so many uh, interpretations of what Sufism was. Uh, Alan's already mentioned the Kalandars, these, these wild dervishes who completely transformed certain types of, of, of Sufism. They were regarded by many Sufis as beyond the pale. On the other hand, there was the more intellectual variety provided by Sufis such as Ibn Arabi, a very famous Spanish mystic who ended up in, in Damascus, who interestingly had his, his very famous uh, disciple, Sedgutin Gonawi, was a, a very close friend of Rumi as well. But I think Rumi occupies a kind of uh, stable middle ground in the respect that he's not intellectual, He's not wild or, or, or untrammeled. He represents a form of Sufism which does emphasise that degree of mysticism whereby people can you know, really understand what God is all about, become near to God.
0: So he's had this intense teaching period. He's in his late 30s now. And he's, got fa- um, and he, he's, he's writing poetry, poetry, an enormous amount, Carol. Um, can you tell us about The Divan?
1: It's a very enormous work, some 3500 plus poems lyrical poems called ghazals quatrains and odes and it's absolutely mind-boggling how how voluminous this collection is and and most of the time it's about love it's about passionate yearning both for god and also for a human beloved. And the the writing of many of these uh, poems is in the first person singular.
0: You have no notes, Kay. Can you give us a few lines from that, or is that asking too much?
1: Well, there's a wonderful line um, in the Divan. Uh, we were once in heaven. We were friends of the angels. Let us all return there. That is our city. In other words, there's this yearning to be rejoined to where we were in eternity before we were born. It's a, if you like, an echo of the Koran, which says, "We belong to God, and to God we are returning." And in the meantime, the human soul is yearning to be reunited.
0: Alan, you you want to come in here, yeah, Alan Williams?
2: Uh, I mean, I think it's very important to say that these ghazals and these odes, qasideh, uh, and so on. Uh, they're they're really quite short poems. Uh, they're like sonnets. The ghazida is sometimes longer. We're talking about fifteen, sometimes twenty lines. Uh, but they're an extraordinary experiment for for Rumi. They really they seem to be composed almost improvis- improvisatorily. That, that is, um, he may have composed them very quickly. But one thing he does is he uh, he experiments with meter all the time. There are some fifty fifty five different meters in in the uh, collection of. Oaths. You just have give you, of you, just so you, give you can one, give us another yeah, taste just of give you one one example. I mean, you, you can really hear the meter in this, um, uh, and it's probably the, one of the most famous lines uh, in in the divan. Uh, every Iranian knows this. Morde shodam. And I've translated it into something like that meter. Forgive me. Dead was I then, I came to life. Weeping, I then started to laugh. The kingdom of love came. I became kingdom of perpetual love. Now, this, this, this then goes on for another 20 verses. This is, that's one single verse I've just quoted. More de Bouddham, Zen de Bouddham, etc., etc. Uh, so these are, they're quite long of our English sonnet standards, but they're, they're very discreet. Each one of them is like a jewel of many facets to contemplate. Carl wants to come back in here. I
1: I wanted to talk about the variety of the imagery. And in fact, the orientalist Jones in 1775 talked about uh, uh, Hafez, the um, Persian poet, as writing Oriental pearls at random cast. And that was criticised when talking about Rumi. But it seems to me that what we've got with, with Rumi is a complex set of ideas, but flashing through are brilliant insights and they come like comets from outside in the darkness and, and shed light on us. Or alternatively, like fireworks, which spread sparks in wide directions, or indeed, sometimes the inspiration coming from the imagery is, is like an electric current, sometimes on and sometimes off. But all these images have an incredibly powerful effect on the listener, and the listener is the word, because they're musical as well.
0: And can, I, can I turn to you now, Lloyd, uh, on these masterwork, the Masnavia but everybody would want to talk about this. Can you tell us the ambition of the poem and the something of the size of it? And is there one idea in it? or uh, I, uh, Alan would want to talk
3: about this, but sure. can
0: you give us an introduction to it?
3: Well, the Masnavi is composed in six volumes. Whether or not Rumi actually planned that to begin with, it, it's unclear, but it's certainly uh, a volume of... of there are certainly scholars who, who, who see certain themes in, in, in these six volumes, <clears throat> But I think it's necessary to make a distinction between Rumi's two major masterpieces, the Masnavi and the Divan Shams, in the respect that the the Masnavi is didactic. It's teaching the specific Sufi path, what the dervish should do, what the Sufi should do in terms of being obedient to his Sheikh, to his master, in terms of the experiences he may find he has. Whereas the Divan Shams is very different. It's Rumi's own personal experiences. So when when you read the Divan, you can actually get to understand what Rumi personally is experiencing in terms of his separation from Shams, in terms of his love for Shams, and so on and so forth. But in terms of the of the, of the Masnavi, you you get very very short stories, and sometimes they're, they they they're short, and then he he digresses and comes back to to the, that short story again. So it's something that really hooks the reader. It's a bit like reading maybe a, a Dickens novel in the respect that Dickens will finish a chapter and go on to something completely different and then comes back to the main topic. So in that way, Rumi is able to subtly transform the reader's idea into what's really going on and then he comes back and back and back.
0: Would it be true, or is this just a stab in the dark? Through I have to say that through all your notes, so there you go. That that it, it, one of the, one of the messages in the Masnavi is of forgiveness and the equality of people before yeah. God.
3: Absolutely, I think forgiveness is perhaps the, not a the word that's banded around too much in 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 Islam. It's perhaps better to talk in terms of mercy. Right, and mercy is a theme that you find amongst. All Sufis, it's one of the predominant features of, of, of Sufism. And what is really interesting for me in terms of mercy is that you find the word mercy expressed in the very first line of the Divana Shams. If, if I may, I'll, I can Please just read, read this in, in, in Persian for you. It says, <speaking in Hebrew> which translates as sudden resurrection, endless mercy. And this kind of theme permeates the whole of the Divan, and even also th- the Masnavi. Um, and this kind of idea of mercy feeds into a kind of ecumenical perspective that you can also find in in Rumi. I think the idea of Rumi um, engaging both men and women is very interesting, and perhaps explains why it was popular, or Sufism was popular, both in the medieval period, but also in the modern period too. But it's not just in terms of gender equality. We we can find um, themes relating to the uh, the oneness that can be experienced by Muslims, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians. He
0: converted, we are told, besides Muslims, Christians, and Jews as well.
3: Well, that's what we're told by the hagiographies. Now, whether right. that's true or not is is another question. Right. But certainly, it, it's possible to read those kind of stories into the masnavi. I mean, there's a very famous story about. Rumi and the blind men, when, of course, the blind men go into the room and they each touch a part of the elephant. One person touches the tail, one person touches the elephant's ear, another leg, and they all have an aspect of the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, can Carol come in for a second? I, I wanted been to... to come Just if you could go in briefly.
1: Certainly. Can... I wanted to talk about the idea of love again because instead of talking about doctrines which divide, he, he says that love, love is important. Let me quote something. The 73 sects will survive until the resurrection, but love conquers all. And as um, Lloyd was just saying, he has a very ecumenically friendly attitude to the other faiths, not on- without relinquishing his own Islamic belief um, embedded in the Quran and the Hadith of the Prophet there's also an attitude where he's spiritually above everything that is to say all religions are valid that is when he says I am not a, a worshipper of the cross or the crescent I am not a Zoroastrian or a Jew in other words he is Respectful of other faiths, and that's quite clear with what goes on in Konya. Alan
0: Williams.
2: I, I just have to comment that actually that particular ghazal is regarded as spurious. It's not in the earliest manuscript, but it is. It certainly captures the spirit of what he's well, saying. Well,
1: as Voltaire would say, if it didn't I exist, then it ought to have done.
2: talking about the masnavi. Uh, could I just say something about the yes. title of it? it? It's it's known as the masnavi Matnavi, which means the spiritual Masnavi, or perhaps better, the the Masnavi of meaning, the couplets of meaning. Now, a thing to understand about this text is that vast as it is, it it and and it contains hundreds of stories, two hundred and something stories. Uh, vast as it is, it devolves. It entirely devolves on the on, on the device of metaphor, which in Persian is mesal, because this is a transformative figure. The metaphor. Uh, every story he tells, and sometimes they're extremely short. Um, uh, I mean, two lines, uh, and they can be in the mouths of uh, animals, birds, flies, even uh, people. Of course, heroes from scripture and so on, but. All of these stories are just the husk, as, as Rumi calls it. They're the husk because what he's trying to get is to the meaning, and so the masnavi is an ocean of meaning, and reading it is like being drowned. It's like being plunged into a, hu- a vast ocean,
1: like a fly in honey.
2: Uh, like the as fly. He says. Well, even ruder than that, actually, yes. It's a fly in something else. But, right. <laughs> but yeah, the 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 idea of. Uh, all of the images uh, in the in the Mass and we start with the the, the reed, don't we? The, the I will perhaps recite in a second. Um, if
0: you could recite the read, then I yes. will, and then I'll ask. Then all of the, then I'll all ask of, Lloyd to, to develop. That yeah, bit.
2: all of these images are 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 ways to to give them the imagination food for thought, so to speak. So just oh, this read. is
0: the very opening. The read is yes, very important. Yes. The song of the read yes. Uh, shall I translate it or Do, shall no? I? No, read it in Persian. I like
2: to hear Persian. Sorry about that. Well,
0: not sorry about that. Okay. It's great, isn't it? I'll, I'll read very it. Very often you get a chance. I'll read
2: it too quickly for for most listeners. No, no, don't
0: read it. Just, take
2: your Chun shakoyet mikonad, as Jodoy ho hekoyet mikonad. Kazna yeston to maro bobride and Darnafiram mardozan, no leader and Sina hohem sharhe sharhe as faroke, to boguyam sharhe dar de eshtiok. E harkasi kedurmond as aslechish, boz Juyad yad, e vasle vaslechish. Now the translation. Right. Listen to this read as it is grieving. It's telling of the tale of separations. Since I was severed from the bed of reeds, in my cry men and women have lamented, I need the breast that's torn to shreds by parting to give expression to the pain of heartache. Whoever finds himself left far from home looks forward to the day. Of his reunion, and this goes on for some thirty-five lines, and that is the passage that it is said began the masnavi when Rumi took took a a note out of his turban, asked by husamuddin to write a masnavi. He produced this naynarmeh, as it's called, of thirty-five lines, and uh, and of course
0: home can mean so many different things, to so many different people, so it has applications. Um, Lloyd, can we develop what Alan's been talking about—the use of stories?
3: in the Masnavi. Mm-hmm. Right. I think one of the, the most engaging things about Rumi's poetry in, in the Masnavi and his storytelling is the fact that he uses very, very simple language that everyone can understand. So, for example, even today, if you go to Tehran, it's likely that people will be able to recite these poetry back to you really quite incredible. I mean, these these days in the UK, we just don't have that capability anymore. We've lost it.
0: We can't recite Chaucer back to each other. Well,
3: absolutely. And the other thing that's really interesting about Rumi is that it's perfectly comprehensible. We don't need Brody's notes. People understand it. It's perfectly clear. But uh, I mean, Rumi's stories are funny. That's perhaps part of the Well, let's talk a
0: story that isn't funny, but it's easy to understand. And and Alan can come in on this as well. The King and the Slave Girl. You want to talk about that? you? You all want to talk about that? Do you want to kick off? Now, Alan's going to kick off, right? Can we be brief about this, the story, and then because that's full of. I'm not, he doesn't hold any punches. When he, when the doctor examines her, he, yeah. we get a lot of detail that a lot it's, of people might find surprising in a delicate 12th <laughs> century in Persian, Persian poet. Yeah. Yes.
2: Oh, one of them is is that it's a story which looks like a romance when it starts, but it turns into what one scholar's called. An anti-folkloric tale. It actually turns very dark. In fact, the king who falls in love with the slave girl uh, discovers that she's actually in love with someone else. She falls sick, and he discovers it's uh, lovesickness for someone else. He then hauls this goldsmith from Khorasan all the way back to, presumably, Konya, uh, and, and poisons him. He, po- he poisons him slowly, so he turns ugly. The girl falls out of love with her lover, and she dies. And so the whole thing ends badly, but in the meantime there has been a divine messenger who comes down from heaven and tells the divine doctor, tells Rumi uh, what's really r- tell, tells uh, the king what's really wrong with the slave girl and, and 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 the king has fallen in love with the divine messenger because he knows that his love for the slave girl was just the love of form of out of form
0: but the amazing thing about this doctor is when he gives her an examination it could be in a, it could be in a surgery now it could mm. be in a doctor's office he says mm. really prods away doesn't he, mm. and finds mm. this out and that and then he analyzed he, he gives a, a psychoanalysis he gets there by psychoanalyzing her and he finds out what's really really upsetting her, and that's the love for somebody else. That's extraordinary. What sort of language is he using here, Lloyd? Is he using language that was available to everybody at the time?
3: Absolutely. At the time in, in Konya, um, there were obviously a number of languages that were used. Arabic was the scholastic language. Persian was the language that was used by the educated and the court. But it was understood by by most people. So it his poetry w- would have been understood, listened to, and read by all kinds of people at the time. Um, but what's most interesting about Rumi, of course, are his his images. You know, in in his works, he talks about the effervescence of, for example, the chickpea bubbling away in in the water, which is obviously uh, a metaphor for the individual and the experience of of God. And it's these kind of images that make Rumi's message really get across. Uh, one of the favourite stories of mine in, in in the Masnavi is his story about Moses and the shepherd. Mm. And in the story, the, the shepherd is uh, making a prayer to God, saying, oh God, I'll do anything for you, I'll I'll give you some, some milk, I'll give you your shoes. And Moses castigates him because, of course, he believes that he shouldn't be using such inappropriate language. You know, he's a theologian, so to speak. And so the, the shepherd has to go away and he feels utterly disappointed and downcast. But, of course, then we have God uh, chastising Moses for using such... Language to a, a poor shepherd who praises God in the way that he sees best. And Rumi actually says in, 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 in his commentary on this that even the Hindu in India praises God using specific terms. So again, it, it's, it's another way that we can see that Rumi is quite ecumenical in this.
0: Karen, I want to comment on this about him bringing in other religions.
1: Well, I I wanted really to mention again we haven't really emphasised enough the horrendous political turmoil in which this brilliant man is operating he goes thousands of miles from the um, eastern extremity in Afghanistan to the western extremity of, of the Muslim world thinking that he is escaping from the Mongols and he is an exile and that, of course, is a, an added dimension to his uh, reed stories, that he is, of course, um, alone, uh, away from his original yes. revisional home. But not only that, the Mongols actually come to Konya quite early on in 1243, and uh, they take over. And yet, Rumi manages to evoke admiration in in the... Mongol protector who is called Muin Adin Parvani he's a Persian and apparently um, Rumi was uh, very much welcomed by the uh, um, Mongol um, agents as it were and uh, even he did spiritual concerts in this man's house so it's a really difficult time for the, the whole of the Muslim world, dreadful bloodshed demographic movements and so on. It's just um, the worst possible thing to have happened and yet he produces this sublime work.
0: Uh, Yeah, Alan, I'm glad you're reminded us of that. Thank you very much. Uh, Alan Williams, back to you. You've described the Maas as a polyphonic composition. (laughs) Can you develop that?
2: Yeah, musical analogies are good for Rumi. He was known to be a great musician um, and uh, what I mean by this is th- is that uh, the kind of poetry he writes is on an altogether different scale from the ghazal. It's it's very big stage stuff. Um, it, it spans the world, so to speak, from the lowest to the highest, uh, and all of nature is taken into it. Uh, uh, he he takes on the the guise of many different. He takes on the voices of many different registers. Um, in, in the poem he he speaks as the as the author the sheikh uh, the sort of grandfather the old man he tells stories as if he's talking to a child he he interrupts himself all the time in these stories by by analogies which are quite intellectual but they're meant to illustrate what he's saying he he goes into speeches that he um where he very cleverly segues from speeches into discourses that become quite mystical um, or become quite homiletic, quite uh, preachy, uh, moral discourses. Uh, they then they turn into ecstasies, and and then he stops. He stops the the whole proceedings and says silence. And there's a there's this kind of um, behaviour, a kind of procedure that the reader becomes used to, almost as if learning the ropes of how to, how to get how to swim in this ocean, okay. uh, and. And and it's really an experience of going through the stages of mystical elevation. The reader himself feels, herself feels, raised up inside, raised up in the imagination. And in that sense, it's quite, it's a cathartic experience reading it, an uplifting experience reading it.
0: L- Lloyd, can I ask you about how popular uh, was? Have we any idea? Can we measure how popular Rumi was
3: then? And let's. Fast forward 800 years and now. Right. It's it's quite difficult to assess how popular Rumi was in his own lifetimes. Yes. Um, it's quite interesting that there's a history written at the time by an individual called Ibn Bibi, and he doesn't mention Rumi at all in his history of, of the Seljuks and Konya. But nevertheless, something is very interesting going on in the respect that Rumi has this big patron, the, as Carol has just said, Parvane, something is interesting going on. In the, in the generation after his death, there are certainly... Uh, aspects of veneration and, and reverence to Rumi because we have hagiographies which were written about him. We have Rumi's son, Sultan Valad, composing poetry about the, the Masnavi. And not only that, but other Sufi orders are composing their own commentaries on the book of the reed. And so by the, the 16th century, we have a very very famous Persian poet called Jami, who says that although he was not a prophet, he had a book i.e. he's comparing the the Masnavi to the Quran, So that's an incredible compliment to, to Rumi.
0: And, Carl, over the, over the centuries, his work permeated... I mean, he became the leading figure in Persian poetry culture.
1: Certainly. He's the greatest m- mystical poet ever. I still prefer the Divan, I have to say, I find uh, the Masnavi has a very meandering discourse, which uh, is all very well, but I get drowned in that ocean that uh, Alan mentioned. Yes, and uh, and nowadays the the popularity of Rumi is uh, in all the countries that end in Stan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, India, and, of course, Turkey and Iran.
0: And in America in the 1980s, he was the most popular poet in Absolutely. America in the 1980s. Absolutely, and yeah.
1: uh, I mean certainly in Los Angeles today, quarter of a million Iranians, who came, uh, many of them after the revolution in 1979, they would have uh, memorised Rumi and still do.
3: Lloyd, yes, I was just going to say we have this incredible phenomenon that the Rumi boom in the modern age, and we can see this. I mean. Everybody wants a piece of Rumi. So that, for example, even massive pop stars like, like Bob Dylan released a, an album of Christmas Carols in 2009 and he did a video to The Little Drummer Boy. And halfway through the video, you get images of whirling dervishes. Now, what whirling dervishes have to do with Little Drummer Boy or Christmas time is, is anyone's business. <laughs> we also have Madonna reciting poetry from Rumi. Philip Glass has been involved in a massive project related to Rumi and it's all part of this huge project which is perhaps spilled by, by people like um, Coleman Barks and Robert Bly. It just goes on and on and on. And as Carol said, I mean, in all countries ending in Stan and in Iran, it's still, still great veneration to the extent that even Persian rappers venerate Rumi and mention him in their songs.
0: Alan Williams, uh, do you want to talk more about the translation because you've dedicated a large part of your life to it and, and in your notes about it you uh, you think that there have been omissions um, and errors along the way.
2: It's been translated into prose by Nicholson some 50, 60 years ago and that's one. Of, well, I think that's one of the reasons that people find it inaccessible in English. Uh, that, that 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 you know, the prose doesn't do it. The the, mm-hmm. the magic of his poetry is is what draws one in to the the topic. Uh, my my passion for it is is really that it, it, although it is a very difficult text, um, there's a voice there which I've not found in any other literature. Uh, now the, the the ghazals are accessible. They they can be translated beautifully into rhythmic. Verses that we can we can enjoy, the masnavi is much more demanding. The transla- for the translator, it's a bit of a nightmare, <laughs> because Persian has no indefinite or definite uh, article that's separate from the word, has no pronouns that are commonly used. So you're trying to cram. I'm trying to cram into an iambic line, uh, what it, what looks like, um, and the meter looks like, um, the same length, twenty two syllables, but but you know it's just. Uh, um, a quart in a pint pot, it's, it's really difficult uh, to do so. And al- also, and mainly, because the ideas are profound and not, they're not this-worldly ideas. Well,
0: Caught in a Pint Pot sometimes summarises what we're trying to do on this programme and I thank congratulate you all for bringing Rumi to so many people because it was terrific. Thanks to Carol Hillenbrand, Alan Williams and Lloyd Ridgen. Next week we'll be talking about the great 17th century scientist Robert Hooke rather overlooked being a contemporary of Newton. Thanks for listening.
1: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: What did we miss out that was essential, or the, what did I miss out? That
1: the, um, I think the interplay of the religions in Konya, and the um, what seems to have been a very vibrant um, atmosphere between the Armenians and the Byzantine Christians and uh, the the various Muslims, Turks and and and, and Persians, and how um, it really must have been quite a, a fascinating place to, to be in um, and there doesn't seem to have been very much persecution it, it could well be in fact that uh, as we've already said Rumi um, did manage to attract a lot of converts it's quite likely because of his charismatic personality but I, I really feel that the, the word I would use of, of his poetry when it's on top form and it gets to me is volcanic volcanic it really mm-hmm. burns you up. Mm. I,
0: when you said it was difficult and so on, I, I read your translations, and honestly, I didn't find it
2: all that difficult.
1: Well, you've been privileged, Wonderful. Melvin, to <laughs> you read, them. read You haven't read Nicholson's.
2: <laughs> no,
1: I Yes, so have
2: I. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's a great compliment, and, and it, it is a matter of translating it not just from uh, Persian into English. It's a matter of translating it from from a century that we're so out of touch with uh, to, to into our modern minds, yeah. And I, I think the Iambic meter is, is, is lovely because it's so conversational and mm-hmm. it has so many registers. It can it can do comedy and it can do tragedy mm-hmm. and it can do farce and it can do contemplation. What I wanted to say in the programme, which, which pro- it's probably good that it didn't go in, is I wanted to talk about the deconstructive nature of his poetry mm. for the, any, any literary listener. This is an extraordinary feature of his poetry, which makes it exciting reading for anyone interested mm. in poetry, is that he uses words literally to take words apart. And, in fact, he talks to himself and chastises himself sometimes for being clumsy. Uh, but, you know, that, that probably couldn't have come across... And, and the other thing is, um, that, as Carol says, he was an amazingly uh, charismatic and unitive figure yeah, in Konya. Yeah. He brought people together. And yeah. I, I regard the Masnavi and his, the rest of his poetry, but particularly the Masnavi, as a kind of antidote to the modern madness that we see going on with extremism in Islam.
1: Well, we never made that point, did we? No. We should have done, about how it's a, a, um, a, a version, a, an attitude, a demonstration of Islam of a completely different kind. And at the moment, I think most people who have perhaps dropped established religions still uh, admire spirituality Mm. as a concept. And that's why his all-embracing attitude to spirituality is is so relevant to us today.
3: I think for for me... One of the things that we perhaps didn't stress enough was how he defamiliarizes old, boring, stale concepts and gives them new life. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, And also the fact that. Which, pre- which old, balls boring, stale concepts? Well, Is for it? example, I mean, he uses all kinds of concepts which some people consider problematic in the respect that he talks about the Galandazis, completely wild dervishes, and yet he, he uses them as a trope to denote the highest level of spirituality. He also talks about halash, this that was executed in the most. Low in terms, and for many people, he's really, really problematic.
2: But the so stereotype like...
3: that he really attacks all right the way through is
2: the self. It's the self itself. The concept of the nafs in Persian. Uh, 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 he takes that apart, and that's what he's trying to kill off. Uh, and it is literally killing it. There's these concepts fana and bakar, or passing away, and. And enduring, uh, we didn't talk about that. But but no. you know he's a, he's really trying to deconstruct the self in all of this, so that one, in a sort of in a way, one, this sort of Deleuzian way, one one is one deconstructs the self. One one becomes disoriented, mm. and it's that disorientation from the self that is the the kind of magic ingredient. The in bad self,
1: but, but but not the. Not the true self, no, true not self the spirit. Because that true self uh, was with God before and will be um, with God after. It's almost like a Neoplatonic concept. There are many more religion and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4.